Good evening. Tonight's lecture is entitled Karaites and Khazars. Truth be told, in dealing with the 9th century, I had uh, a selection of things to talk about, but perhaps two of the most interesting, not only of their time, but fundamental even for our times, and misunderstood Jewish groups. These were groups of hundreds of thousands or more of Jews are the Karaites and the Khazars. So I will spend a large part of the night dealing exclusively with these two groups, which have ramifications to our very own day today. I very, very often hear people talking about Karaites or Khazars, not usually in the same conversation, um, although they came, they both started within 20 years of each other, but very often misapplied information is applied to them or incorrect information incorrect comments who are these individuals who are these people who at one point uh, were a large percent of the Jewish people we left off last week discussing Babylonian Jewry and the rise of Islam and we discussed at length the Reish Galusa the Exilarch of Babylonian Jewry, excuse me, was the head of worldwide Jewry. At some points in history, after the Islamic conquest of all North Africa and the Middle East, the Reish Galusa, the Exilarch, ruled over 90% of world Jewry. And the Reish Galusa's position was for over 1,500 years. During the long history of Babylonian Jewry, Sometimes the Reish Galusa wielded more power. Sometimes the Goonim, which we discussed last week, which were the heads of the two great yeshivas, Sura and Pumpadisya, of Sura and Pumpadisya, sometimes they were in the ruling power. Much depended upon the political climate of the time. Much depended on the personalities involved, who was running, Babylonian Jewry and thus who was running worldwide Jewry. Would it be the Reish Galusa? Would it be the Exilarch? The head of the, from the Davidic line who ruled Babylonian Jewry, who the Arabs put at a pedestal as we discussed last week? Or would it be the heads of the Yeshivas? Very often they worked in tandem, but often there was tension amongst them. It was actually a dispute of lineage that created the famous splinter sect of the Karaites in the 8th century. When Shlomo, who was the Reish Galusa, the Exilarch, passed away in 760, there was a question of who would take over the position of Reish Galusa. As mentioned last week, the position of Reish Galusa was by lineage. A person had to be from the house of David to take that position. Shlomo had no children. But he did have two nephews. Both of them were brilliant Talmudists, both very popular. One's name was Anan, and the second name was Hananya. Anan was older, he was a greater scholar, he was more charismatic, with a greater personality. Nevertheless, both the Dean, the Rosh Hashiva of Surah, <coughs> and the Rosh Hashiva of Pumbadisya, chose Hananya. And the reason was because Hananya was apparently a more grounded, more God-fearing individual. 
This, of course, came as a blow to Anan. And Anan did not take this sitting down. On the contrary, Anan declared himself to be the Reish Galusa. He declared himself to be the Exilarch, and he started to gain followers. Now, in those days, the way a person became the Reish Galusa is he had to be nominated by the deans of the yeshivas. Now remember, this is ruling over millions of Jews in the Middle East. Had to be nominated by the two deans of the great yeshivas, both having thousands of students. And then the caliph of Baghdad, who was for most of the mid, mid, Middle Ages Arab history, was the greatest caliph in the Islamic world, had to approve the position. Which means that the position was given over by the caliph of Baghdad. So when Anan goes around saying, I am the Rish Galusa, contrary to the caliph of Baghdad, guess what happens to Anan? He ends up in prison. Not only does he end up in prison, he ends up with a death sentence that Anan is going to be killed. History is a very funny thing. You know, God runs the world, and God puts different people in different places. So Anan gets thrown into jail for declaring himself the Rish Galusa, and who is his compatriot in jail? His compatriot is a Muslim named Abu Hanifa al-Numan Ibn Tabitz. I'm sure everyone knows who this is. For those who don't know, he was the founder of the Hanufi, um, which is most of us, the Hanufi sect of Islam, which at the time was a moral sect of Islam, which was also unpopular because it came it was a non-conformist Islamic sect. And he told Anan who is mostly get killed on Sunday, when you go for the calf with your last plea of life, listen to me what to do. Do not say that you are a Jew, because if you say that, you're going to get the death sentence, because you said you're the exarch. Claim that you really are a different religion. Claim that you really are the leader of not the mainstream Jewish people, but of a different religion, that you have a different <coughs> viewpoint of the world. And get some of your backers to back you on that. <coughs> and that's exactly what happened. Anan goes in on this on the Sunday where he's supposed to get executed. He has the last word with the caliph. And he tells him, I would never come against your word, my majesty. You, caliph of Baghdad, would I ever come against you? Of course not. When I said I'm Reish Galusa, when I said I'm the Exilarch, what I meant to say is, I'm an Exilarch of a different religion. <laughs> I wasn't rebelling against your word. I'm the, the head, which will become of the Karaites. I am the head of a different religion. We feel that these Jews went off the proper path. Now, if you're the Caliph of Baghdad and you hear this, well, it's not such a bad idea because it creates an opposition to the, a very powerful Jewish community which was in um, Ira- the Iraqi territory. And we discussed last week, it was spread out throughout the Middle East. And he bought it. Anand then went ahead and started a new religion. And he had potential followers. Who were these followers? Well, when Islam came in 634 and conquered Babylonia, or conquered Iraq, conquered the Sassanid Empire, it was a cataclysmic event, as we discussed last week. There are many people with different viewpoints, many isms going around. Christianity wasn't defined. Islam wasn't defined. And there were Jews who got caught up in, in literally a dozen plus small splinter sects. Some of the names we don't even hear, Issaites, Malachites, Nishawites, Shaktanites, Yugidanites, all having their different flavors, 
the different uh, forms. And the truth is, all of these small groups would have disappeared with history. However, Anan took them in. And in 770, just three years after being arrested and put into jail with a, a, to be executed, he wrote his Sefer HaMitzvahs, his book of principles. His book of mitzvahs. And what Anan did is he resurrected much of the old Sadducee doctrine. Now we discussed the Sadducees at length and we discussed the Second Temple period. The Sadducees ostensibly believed that only the written law was true. The oral law was not. But we'll discuss that. We'll reiterate that in a minute or two. And he took some of these writings. He took the writings of Philo who used parts of Judaism as allegorical, which we had discussed previously. And he created, as I said, literally a new religion. Although all of his followers were from the Jews. So he basically brought it up. And he took all old Sadducee ideas. Which meant that, and we'll go through this in detail, that you couldn't turn on the light on Sabbath. You couldn't have hot food on Shabbos. You, Shavuos would always be the, fe- the, the, fe- the Feast of Pentecost, I think that's what they called it. It would always be on Sunday. Hanukkah. This week's Hanukkah. Guess what? There's no Hanukkah for the Karaites. No Purim either. That's a rabbinic holiday. We don't follow rabbinic Judaism, said the Karaites. No Hanukkah, no potato lockers, and no jelly donuts. Right? No dreidel, none of that. The Karaites, interestingly enough, and we'll, we'll embellish upon this because it's very important would have to make their own oral law because basically no matter what you're going to do <laughs> you can't just have a written law because how do you understand anything in the, in, the, in the written law I discussed this at length in my excursus on the oral law now because Anan in starting the Karai movement used a lot of Sadducees um, original thought patterns there were those who erroneously assumed that what Anan did is he just took the Sadducees he could, he was, the Sadducees were still around at some level. And what Anand is, he took them over. Who is the first person, first Jew to seriously push us? His name, and we will discuss him at length, is Abraham Geiger. Abraham Geiger was the biggest proponent of Reform Judaism in Germany in the early 19th century. Abraham Geiger was at first, actually friendly with Refersh, <laughs> Refersh, of course, uh, became his greatest antagonist uh, in the 19th century. Both were, Refersh was the head of the Orthodox community in Frankfurt, and Geiger was the head of the Reform community. Geiger contended, and we'll see how incredulous this is historically and sociologically in a minute, that the Karaites really came from the Sadducees. Right? He was not the first individual, a British theologian by the name of John Gill in 1767 maintained the same thing. He said as follows, and this is really wacky, in the times of John Hercules and Alexander Janus, Alexander Yanai, his son sprung up the sect of the Karaites in opposition to the Pharisees. <coughs> he writes how also in times of Shammai and Hillel perhaps, then that's when these Karaites came out. Clearly there was no such thing as a Karaite at the time. What he was trying to contend is that the Sadducees were always around. Almost all historians, without a doubt, without, without even questioning it, say this is not true. The Karaites literally disappear from history with the destruction of the Second Temple. 
There's no historical evidence, and the Jews were talked about at length, not only by Jewish literature, but by Christian literature and Arabic literature. The Sadducees clearly disappeared as a group. Most of them became Christians, or left Jewish faith, or went back to what we call the Pharisees, which we discussed at length as well. Uh, Bernard Revel, who was the first president of Yeshiva University, wrote his dissertation, his PhD in Karat Halacha, and decided to go through all of Geiger's points and show how incorrect Geiger was. Also pointing out that, that the, what, what the Karats themselves do, if you read their books, which Geiger denied, it's clear from his writings, um, and Revel did, that was his dissertation, is that the Karats quoted the Sadducees. They quoted the Sadducees as people they were bringing as proofs to themselves. But they did not, they were certainly not a continuation of Sadducees. Lastly, on this point, Rabbi Zweig, who I mentioned, is Roshiva Miami, brings many proofs. And this I, I personally think makes a lot of sense, that the Sadducees were different than the Karaites. The Sadducees did not not believe in the oral law. What they believed was that the oral law cannot contravene the Pashat, the simple text of the written law. Means if there is a question of the oral law going against the simple text of the written law, the written law wins. Otherwise, we follow oral law. Okay, that's why the Talmud says you couldn't tell who a Sadducee was and who a Pharisee was at times. They had to screen people. Well, the Karaites were clearly distinguishable from the rest of authentic Jewry, which we'll discuss. The Karaites were not hard to pick up who these individuals were. The famous professor of history of Colombia, Salo Baran, Baron, depends how you pronounce the name, the European way, the English way, he contended in his history book that up to 40% of world Jewry by the 10th century was Karite, and the majority of the Jewish population of Israel was Karite. Now, that makes the Karites bigger than reforming conservative everywhere in world Jewry combined. Okay? We are talking about a mass movement. We are talking about a movement that literally almost overtook the Jewish world. So I would like to discuss a little bit of detail who were these individuals. Because the fact that Geiger, paradoxically, points out that the Karaites came in the was not for naught. Because the next time after the Karaites pretty much dissipated as a worldwide movement in the 12th century, that a movement would come against the oral law would be the Reformed Jews in the 19th century. And like the Karaites, they also had no tradition for that. Basically, what happened at post-Mendelssohn, we won't talk about Mendelssohn today, is that Reformed Jews who were assimilating in mass, and who you will almost find no descendants of these Jews, made Judaism user-friendly for Germany, user-friendly, and therefore pulled out the oral law, and eventually would take out the written law as well. Of course, Reformed Jews don't believe that the written Torah was given at Sinai. So, Karaites were not only more numerous than Reform and Conservative one, they were more from. <laughs> you will see these were religious Jews to a large extent. They practiced what they preached. They did not not keep religion. They, they were daily Jews. What did the Karaites believe? The Karaites believed that the original form of Judaism was what God gave at Sinai. It was clearly God gave the Torah at Sinai. Gave it to all the Jews as the five books of Moses. And that anything that was not in those five books <coughs> was not true. 
everything that was in the five books was true. There is a Messiah. There is a reward and punishment. There is only one God. But what was, what's God's will? God's will is to follow what's in these, in, in the, the books. And, no, nothing like an oral Torah, which I really discuss at length. So for those who are not here for that lecture, should go back and listen to the tape, which, or the MP3, and ha- just going through how the oral Torah is obviously intrinsically bound with the written Torah. We discussed that when I discussed the Sadducees. And therefore, the oral Torah is also out of the picture. How do the Kalites keep the Sabbath? Well, the Kalites kept Sabbath. They kept Shabbos. They, they didn't drive to Shul on Shabbos. No. The Kalites, not only did they keep Shabbos, they did nothing. They did no malacha on Shabbos. They did not even kindle a flame. The Kalites held that when the Torah says you can't do kindle, they didn't say kindle, they learned it as burn. When we say or, they read as burn. Really it means to kindle. Anyone who knows Hebrew knows that. But they read Yatsar as kindle and Ba'ar as burn. Therefore, Karit told you cannot use any fire on the Sabbath. Not no hot food on the Sabbath whatsoever. You can't have any form of heat or anything, anything, any electricity in our days on the Sabbath. That's why the Ran Rabbeinu Nisim, the great 14th century sage in Barcelona, Spain, said as follows. Any Jew who does not have hot food on the Sabbath is assumed to be a Karite. Because we can have hot food on the Sabbath. If we put the food on before the Sabbath, totally fine. As long as we don't start a fire, that's fine. Well, the Karite told you couldn't use fire at all. That's where the custom comes of Cholent. Not, not, that's where Cholent comes from. Cholent comes from all Jews had to have hot food on the Sabbath. Right? All we saw Cholent comes, we thank the Karites for Cholent. That's one good thing they brought to the world. If it wouldn't be for the Karites, we would not have had Cholent today. So we have to thank them for that. Well, if you're a Karite today, and we'll see there are very few left, but if you're one of those Karites, if you can't use fire on the Sabbath, you can't have even pre-existing fire, Guess what you can't have today? Electricity. So if you're a cat today, you got to pull out your plug to your refrigerator. you got to pull out the plug to your freezer. That's what the, the firm ones do. What most carrots tonight, today, even if they're carrots, are not observant. But if you are an observant cat, you got to pull out the plug to your fri- fridge, fridge or your freezer because you can't have any um, any uh, electricity at all. They also turn off the circuit breakers. Carrots, when they went to the shul on the Sabbath, they prostrated. They bowed like the Arabs did. Not like Jews do. Tzitzis. Did the Karaites wear tzitzis? Yes, they did. Not only did they wear tzitzis, but they wore tchelis. They still do if they wear tzitzis. Because they feel, Torah says a blue string, it doesn't say what the blue is. So any blue is okay. You don't need a certain shell or mollusk like the Talmud says. Any blue string, you can take, pick what blue you like, pick your favorite blue. Any blue string are good for tzitzis. Now when I was younger, I was always told by, you know, People would say, if you're too far, too far down, they're between your eyes, <coughs> you're going to be a carite. That's how the carites were the tefillin. Carites were, now it happens to be, according to Jewish law, the tefillin has to be a bar- above your hairline. It has to be approximately around here, about an inch above your hairline, ideally. If it's too far down, you don't fulfill your obligation. <laughs> However, it happens to be that the carites didn't wear tefillin at all. <laughs> They felt that the verse says, that you should tie it between your eyes and by your heart. Obviously that can't be literal. 
They also didn't know what tefillin are from the Torah. It must be metaphorical. It must be that you have to have God in your heart and in your head. There's no such thing as tefillin. Karaites don't wear tefillin. Same thing by mezuzahs. Karaites don't ha- didn't have tefillin mezuzah. They felt it was a metaphor, metaphorical verse in the Torah. Some Karaites actually, believe it or not, put a, a Ten Commandments on their door. A little thing of the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments are, are the main thing. They put that on the door. It happens to be in contemporary Israel, some of the Karaites, in order to mesh in with their Jewish neighbors, will put a lot of mezuzah the, on their door. That's for, you know, being kindly neighbors. But they, they themselves, Karaites never believed in mezuzah, and they themselves didn't use mezuzah. Who is a Jew? Karaites are probably the first group that we find to ever believe. It's, it's remarkable when you start looking at how the Karaites would be a, a predecessor for many of the reform inventions. Karaites were the first group to, to claim patrilineal descent. Okay, Karaites, it's clear from the book of Ezra, they, get, they claim it starts in Ezra, but we'll see Karaites claim that there's patrilineal descent and that we see certain figures in the Bible clearly marry non-Jews. So therefore, and lineage goes through patrilineal descent, and it happens to be lineage is patrilineal, however, Jewishness is not. And what the Talmud says, it's actually an explicit Mishnah, and the Mishnah says this was always the case, the Mishnah then goes, the Gemara, in all the places where it looks like somebody married someone who's not Jewish, says they converted, and it goes through the, the whole that. The Mishnah says there's only two ways it can be a Jew. Mishnah and Kedushin, and it learns it out from an ex- a verse in Tvarim and Deuteronomy, Either you convert or your mother's a Jew. That's it. A patrilineal descent is not true as co- according to Judaism. Um, today, of course, Reform and Reconstructionist Judaism do this for um, various other reasons. How do the, the Torah, how do the, the rabbis and the Torah view the Karaites? Maimonides, of course, and this is Maimonides, not the first says that anybody who doesn't believe in the oral law is a heretic, pure and simple. If a person doesn't believe in the oral law, according to Jewish dogma, they don't believe in God's the Torah. They don't believe in the oral Torah. You can't learn the Torah. As I said when I discussed the oral Torah, to quote Rav Hirsch, that the written Torah is just the shorthand notes of a lecture. The written Torah is incomplete. It's, you cannot understand the written Torah without the oral Torah. Therefore, you don't believe in anything if you don't believe in the oral Torah. According to the Talmud, <laughs> you are a heretic. You are a kaifer. You are, you are out of the Jewish camp. However, what Maimonides does say, in the same talk about the Karaites in specific, is that these people follow their fathers, and therefore there's something, they have a status called Tinak Shanishba, a child that's lost at birth. They're raised a certain way, they don't know any better. A person's convinced that what they do is right. And the Ram says something very interesting. And even if a carriage then goes ahead and meets a Jew or discusses with a Jew the law and he doesn't believe, he's still probably a Tinek Shanishpa. Why? Because he's already emotionally invested in his belief system. Once a person becomes emotionally invested, you can argue it to the, to the 100th degree. And it's very, very hard to admit something different when your parents did this and your cousins did this. And you all have shuas on Sunday, and you always never watch fill-in. Not very hard to believe this. Salam says that Tinek Shanishba, and you should bring them back with love, not come against them. This is in the, the Ram, of course, is right in the 12th century. You should try to bring them back with love, and we'll discuss 
Maimonides himself basically shut down the carrots of Fostat of Old Cairo because they were prevalent in Cairo when he came there. Halakhically speaking, the, the rabbis by the 17th century held that the Karaites were one of two things. Either, either not Jewish, because they went by Pachelon all descent, they're questionable Jews, and even if they were Jewish, they're Mamzerim. They have a din of bastard, because they don't follow halachic divorce. Which means that all of the divorces were not good. Okay, now this becomes a point of contention in the 20th century. Because remember, the Karaites are only using patrilineal descent. Now, the, the one thing the Karaites have going for them is they don't accept converts for 600 years, almost 600 years. That will change, as we'll discuss shortly. So there are no converts coming soon. It's not like other sects of Judaism which get lost, like the early Christians, because they changed the law of conversion, as we discussed. Or if you look at certain, like Reform Judaism today, it's going to be non-halachic within a generation. It's already majority non-halachic. Right? The Karaites did not accept converts, so you don't have a problem with conversion, but you have patrilineal descent. The consensus when the state of Israel was founded, the rabbinate said they are not considered halakhically Jewish. Now, the law of return allowed them to come in. <laughs> this is like, even somebody, law of return allows Jews whose grandfather is Jewish, and their group is Christian to come back in. That's the law of return. The law of return does not follow the Jewish Bible, does not follow Tanakh, it follows the Nuremberg laws. <laughs> Okay, that's the law of return follows. And therefore, the law of return allows them to come in, but they cannot get married to Jews, and they are not considered Jewish. In fact, the overwhelming rabbinic consensus is that even if a Karite would convert, they cannot marry a Jew, because they are in doubt a Jew, and if they're not a Jew, if they are a Jew, they are mamzer. They're considered a bastard. It means they had no divorce, halakhic divorces. They just had civil divorces. They may have had good marriages, Civil divorces, they are considered a mamzer. The almost all poskim hold this way. The one poskim under certain conditions who allows Karaites to marry in is Rabbi Yosef, but even him, it's with certain conditions when the mother is clearly Jewish, on certain, on certain conditions. That is the cadets debate today. Obviously, I don't want to rehash the same conversation we had when we talked about the Sadducees, but the. <laughs> You know, to, to say there's no oral law, I, you know, if you ever have a conversation with the carrots, it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's something you, you, want, you want to do for your uh, fun, because they really, today, carrots are, are not at all well-versed in their, in their own faith. But you just, you know, meat and milk. Carrots, of course, meat and milk together is biblical. Now, they're going to be stuck at some level doing that. They don't wait six hours, they don't wait one hour. That's rabbinic. But what is meat and milk? So you say, why are you careful about meat and milk? Well, the Torah says meat and milk. Torah says meat and milk. Where does Torah say meat and milk? It says, Basar, and I discussed this, and Ches Lamed Beis. What's Ches Lamed Beis? Is it Chalev? Is it forbidden fats? Is it Chalev? Is it milk? You have no idea. You need to rely on the rabbinic tradition of valorization. You can't read the Bible. The entire world, by the way, Christians, anyone who reads the Bible, relies on the Talmud's interpretation of the Bible. If you read the Septuagint or you go to Jerome's Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, it's relying on our translation. The King James Bible is based on our translation originally, on the oral law. You can't read it. All of these things. Sabbath. There's no indication of what the Sabbath is. Rest from work on Sabbath. You know how often I get somebody, a Jew, who doesn't know anything about Judaism, 
they come to my house and they say to me, Rabbi, why, you know, why can I, why can't I, why can I move boxes on the Sabbath, but I can't turn on the light? Turning on the light is just a, a piece of cake. Moving a box is heavy work, heavy labor. Right? Obviously, that's a person who doesn't know what the text says. Right? This Torah doesn't just says, keep all on the Sabbath, very severe punishment if you don't. What is the Sabbath? What does it say? Well, well, it doesn't, doesn't say it. All the Talmud's what's going to hash all of this out. Mezuzah, obviously, and Tefillin, we, uh, Mezuzah and Tefillin, and many other, I mean, literally thousands of things, slaughtering meat. What is Shechita? How do you slaughter meat? Tell it doesn't say. What are the four species on Sukkot? Right? Where are they? It says, like I, like I command you. What do you command? I discussed this with the so I'm not going to review it, but just something to keep in mind. Now, the Karaites did become popular, okay? The Karaite movement spread at, at a certain point for various reasons, partially because, you know, it was for <coughs> all alternative movements. If a person has a, 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 a weaker background, it's not spread amongst the scholarly class, it's spread about amongst the weaker class. You have people going ahead and pushing it. They can seduce the masses. So the Karaites started to spread, and they had a golden age of the Karaites it's from about the 9th century to the early 11th century. And they spread across the world. And at one point, there were very... If you actually if you read Middle Age philosophy, there's something called Kalam. There was Islamic Kalam and there was Jewish Kalam. Kalam was an, almost an, an anti-Aristotelian philosophy. The Rambam, Maimonides, and his guides are perplexed, bashes it to no end. But the Karaites were very prevalent in Kalam. The Karaites became 40% of, perhaps, up to 40% of world Jewry, and the majority of Israeli Jewry. Until one of the greatest figures, and there's always a great figure this time, that comes up, Rav Sadia Gon becomes the head of Babylonian Jewry. Who is Rav Sadia Gon? Rav Sadia Gon is perhaps the most famous Goyen of all of the Goyen. Remember, the Goyen go from the 6th to the, uh, to the beginning of the 11th century, end of the 10th, beginning of the 11th century. If Sadegon, uh, really 10th century, excuse me, uh, Sadegon was born in Egypt. His father, Joseph, <coughs> was a teacher, and he was a child prodigy. A brilliant child. And at the age of 19 years old, he wrote the first Hebrew dictionary. And the first book, Hebrew book of Hebrew grammar, called Agron, which people, scholars to our very day, study for grammar and Hebrew dictionary. All the, the famous poets, even Gabriel, Jehuda, Levi, would all use the Agron. In fact, Avram Ibn Ezra, who lived 200 years later, one of the greatest Spanish sages, praised the Agron so highly. This was a book written by a 19-year-old. Well, Rasad Yagod, at a young age, looked around him, and he saw these Karaites. And he said, what in the world are all these people? They're breaking Jewish law. No one's taking a strong, a strong stance against them. At the age of 23 years old, it reminds me of Hirsch, because Hirsch is 26 years old when he, when he wrote the 19 letters against Reformed Judaism. At the age of 23 years old, at the age of 23 years old, Rafsad Yagon takes on the Karaites in Egypt. Vociferously, and starts demolishing them through homilies, through sermons, through written documents, taking them on piece by piece. Now, 
when the Catholics started to lose the battle of ideas to Sajidon, well, how do you attack somebody who can't be to ideas? Well, you ad hominem attack them. Well, they didn't just ad hominem attack of Sajidon and try to destroy his reputation. They physically tried to kill him. They went after this 23-year-old upstart who was daring to come against them and tried to kill him. He had to escape Egypt for his life at the age of 23. I mean, they, they ransacked his house, they destroyed some of his works. Sadia leaves, um, Egypt goes to the Holy Land for a period of time, and starts writing works. And Sadia goes wrote in Arabic, which was, at the time, novel. Until that point, all Jewish work was written either in Hebrew, which is a scholarly class, or Aramaic, which was what Babylonian Jewry had spoken for generations. Well, since Arabic had become the prevalent language of the, the world, Rav Sadia starts writing books in Arabic to take them on. Now remember, and I don't want to jump to Reform Judaism, because, again, the next major theological break, which is serious ramifications, now, I, I had a Reform Jew by my house, who's a very fine person, I mean, a person I respect on so many levels, an, a warm individual, very, very intelligent, and I mean very intelligent, and I, you know, I, the person started telling me at the Reformed Temple, and I said to them, I said, do you theologically believe in it? I said, I said do you theologically think that that's right? They tell you how comfortable they are, how, how nice it is. I said, okay, very nice. Do you theologically think you're right? No answer. There's <laughs> no answer. It's the comfort level. It wasn't, it wasn't, the person never really thought about it, I can tell. This, is, this was not only an Ivy League, but I'm not a person who has a higher graduate degree in Stanford. I want to say more than that. Um, I mean, brilliant individual. I said, do you see, I mean, you're telling me this is a pretty serious thing in life. It's my theology. This is what your whole life. You're very comfortable. Do you believe what you're doing? Right? Do you believe what you're doing? So if Saadi Gon was first an abbot of Hirsch, reformed it in Germany. They translated, of course, Mendelssohn translates the beer, was the first German translation of the Bible. And reformed it, they immediately switched to German over Yiddish or, or Hebrew or any language to do the sermons. So Hirsch, of course, took them on and did the same thing. He went back to German also and penned in German in order to fight against them on their own turf. So if Sadigon starts writing, he wrote a classic work. And this is a very popular sefer until our very day called Emuna Videus, right? The book of belief and ideas, which had a tremendous influence on Jewish thought, which he discussed Christianity, Islam, even Hinduism and Buddhism, which were around, and the Karaites at length. And it was in ten sections, he discusses the oral law, Mishnah, Talmud, really an all-encompassing book. He listened to his words of introduction. It pains my heart, my heart to see many Jews engulfed in oceans of doubt and struggling in the raging waters of error. And there is no diver to help them out of their depths nor a swimmer to lend them a hand. And as the Almighty had taught me the way to help them, I considered it my duty to extend a helping hand to them. I, I, to extend a helping hand to them. This became a, 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 a ruler book. Rosadia eventually, at the youngest age ever, becomes the Rosh Hashiva of Surah at 45. This position was traditionally held by 80-year-olds. Kesura was the most prestigious yeshiva in the world, in the most prestigious position. He would, of course, have a to do with the Reish Galusa himself, 
who was a very strong personality, which we don't have the time to discuss today. Rabsadi also wrote a book called Tafsir, which was a book of knowledge and wisdom on the Bible. Many of Rabsadi goes, he was not only brilliant in Talmud, Mishnah, poetry, he was brilliant in all the sciences. He wrote on every topic um, there that's clear from the, the, all of the sages who wrote about him. But many of his works did not survive the test of time. Maimonides wrote about Rav Sadia 200 plus years later, where not for Rav Sadia gone, the Torah would have almost disappeared from the Jewish people. For it was he who should write on that which was obscure, strengthen that which had been weakened, and spread Torah far and wide by word of mouth and in writing. The Karaites would soon dwindle after Sadion. He really took them on theologically. Ideas, in the world of ideas, not the world of comfort, not the world of what you would like to be, what is true and what is not true. Right? Not what my mommy told me, not what my tati told me, but what is true, what does the Torah want from us? And that's what Sadigo wanted to prove, and that's why he won. He beat the Karaites, they lost tremendous numbers, came back to Torah true Judaism because of Sadion. And although they would still be around, they would never be the same after Sadion. Sadion will discuss the next lecture when he passes away in 942. Really, that will end the hurrah of the Goonim in Babylonia and world Jewry scholarship, which started to transfer to North Africa and Spain and into France with the House of Rashi. Those were future lectures. In Spain, the Karaites went, but they were chased out by the rabbis. In fact, the Rabbonim of Spain went to the Spanish caliphs and got abandoned from Spain, pretty much. So when it's not able to spread to Spain. Karaites, again, after Saadia, and a little bit later, start to disappear from history to a large extent. It's a, a minor movement, not a major movement. And in the 14th century, though, some of them come to the Crimea and Lithuania. Because the Karaites will be a, still a small group in Egypt, and they'll end up coming to Crimea and Lithuania at the behest of a, a Grand Duke Vytitus in 1397. These Karaites would be a small community, and they actually, they're famous for having three windows in their house. A, a window for God, a window for the family, and a window for this Grand Duke who invited them into their house. Interestingly enough, they were really a small group, always several thousand, nothing, never, never too populous. But in the early 19th century, because the Russian Tsars, now we will discuss at length the anti-Semitic pogroms of the Russian Tsars, because unfortunately, most of American Jewry, most of lost American Jewry, came from these Russian Jews. <laughs> if you look at the descendants of the 50% plus American Jewry who is unaffiliated in this country, they're mostly either Russian background, because German Jews, this, the small German Jews came, and mostly are gone from us, either Russian or Romanian, who came in the early, late 19th century because of these pogroms, because of the rabid government-sponsored anti-Semitism in Russia. It would, of course, also start the communist movement, start socialism to a large extent. It would start the Zionist movement to a large extent. Uh, it would have a lot of ramifications, this Russian boiler cooker in Russia, putting tremendous financial, ph- philosophical pressure on the Jews of Russia, a very numerous population. Well, the Karaites were subject to this pressure. Then they said something differently. The Karaites, under Avram Furkovitz, said, 
we're not really descendants of the Jews. We're really descendants of the Khazars. <laughs> we are not biologically descendants of the Jews. We're a different religion. Don't persecute us. And they sold themselves. In fact, many of these Crimean, called Karlers, the Crimean Karites, actually adopted Jesus and Muhammad as prophets as well. They were then spared. They were then spared the, the anti-Semitic decrees of the Russian Tsar. In fact, Karites were not subject to all of the forced induction of seven-year-olds, which the rest of Russian Jewry was in the, in the 1840s. They were not subject to all of the pogroms. Not only that, this is an amazing thing. When the Nazis take over Odessa and all the Crimea, well, they start looking, who in the world is Kaulas, these Crimean Karites, these, who are these people? Are they Jews? Because if they're Jews, <laughs> they're not going to have a good fate. And he actually sent a question to three Lithuanian rabbinic Torah Jews who the Karaites were, not telling them what they did. They all said that they're not Jews. They all knew why the Nazis are asking. In order to spare the Karaites, they said they're not Jews. <coughs> they, they were coming from Jewish backgrounds. Um, today, these Karaites actually, the descendants, were about 13,000 in 1890s, and they pulled over 13,000 Karaites of these Karaites. They were probably um, a few hundred left in the world, but they, by the worldwide Karaite movement, are not considered Jews. They are not considered even Karaites, and in fact, they campaigned against them that they should not be allowed into the law of return. These are the same people who said, they don't come from the Jews. Why should they come back out of the law of return? They didn't even have to come on to authentic Judaism. The Karaites themselves kind of banned them from their own movement. Who are the Karaites today? There are approximately 4,000 Karaites. This is a movement which was 40% of worldwide Jewry. 40%. Right? So the Karaites today are about 4,000 in the United States, approximately, thank you, <coughs> 10,000 in Israel, and several dozen in Turkey. Okay. Um, as mentioned, the the, rab- the rabbinates did not see them as Jews and in fact pushed for them not to be allowed under the law of return they were not successful under that um, the, the Karite leadership in Israel Karites are mostly found in Ramla Ashtod and Beersheba they have a board of Chachamim and almost all of these Chachamim come from Egyptian Jewish descent there are 4,000 Karites in the United States Believe it or not, where is the only functioning Karite synagogue in the United States of America? Bailey City. No, Bailey City. San Francisco, the home of Jews for Jesus, the founding movement, is also the founding place of the Karites. In the United States, the only place, in fact, the University of Karite Judaism is in Bailey City. Uh, and most of these Karites are of Egyptian Jewish, Jewish descent. If you ever read about it, it's actually interesting, two of the, the, the heads of that, I think the Chacham and the president at one point were Egyptian Jews who were imprisoned by Egypt in 1967. When, when Israel de- demolished Egypt in 1967, this is, well, if we get to the Six Day War, we'll discuss this. Um, they actually imprisoned for a long time many of the Jewish people left in Cairo. Now, most of the Jews left Cairo in 1940 to 1952. In fact, the last chief rabbi in Cairo. Was a fa- is a famous rabbi today. He's viewed as the most popular Sephardic rabbi. He's Rabbi Yosef. He was the last chief rabbi of Egypt in Cairo, and he left in 1948. 
Okay, Ravad Yosef was also a child prodigy. Um, so the most of the Jews that were left there were Karaites. So they arrested a lot of the Karaites that were also halachic Jews, but <coughs> it was mostly Karaites. Now the Karaites until 2007 did not have conversion. Approximately 15 years ago, the Karaites changed that policy because they were running out of members. And for the first time, changed the laws of conversion. And now, for <coughs> the past two years, three years, had about 25 converts coming. Obviously, these are not according to anybody halachic, and they're not Jewish. Um, there are about 80 Karaites. There's one synagogue called Kahal, HaKodesh bin Sikra ben Mikra in Istanbul. So about 80 Karaites left in Turkey as well. There are, like all, like all movements that leave Torah Judaism over time, irrelevant <laughs> today. Irrelevant. They made no mark on a serious basis of Jewish history. They did not withstand the test of time. And even the Karaites today, they're mostly, mostly illiterate, unobservant, and that's where they go for converts. You always know when the laws of conversion change, it's because, I just read like today, that conservative Jewry is now welcoming interfaith. Uh, it's not today's discussion, but whenever you have membership problems, an easy way to solve that is by changing the laws of who can be a member. <laughs> it's just how, it's, a, it's just an easy way to solve the issue. If you change membership, then you can be more inclusive. Not theologically, by me, but it's just a numbers game. The Khazars. Look at source number one. The Khazars are, and I want, this I'm going to discuss at length because the Khazars are almost esoteric. <laughs> I mean, who these Khazars were and what they were and the ramifications to our day, that's all we'll discussed now. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time just proving about the Khazars because there's not a heavy amount. They were in a part of Europe which was not particularly civilized and they were, they were extant from the 7th to the 10th century in an area where 99% of Europe, but for the Jews, were illiterate. You saw that only 1% of Europe was literate at the time, were able to write. So there's not that many historians going around and not that much communications. Look at source number one on the source sheet. This is American author, a story happens to be a great folk storyteller, Nathan Ozabel in Pictorial History of the Jewish People, 1953. Of all the astonishing experiences of the widely dispersed Jewish people, none was more extraordinary than that concerning the Khazars. The Khazars were a semi-nomadic Turkish people who established a humongous kingdom called Khazaria or Khazar between the 7th and 10th century. This was one of the largest entities in medieval Eurasia. Only probably the only, not even actually as large, was the Franks under Charlemagne, but even Charlemagne's kingdom was not as large. The next largest kingdom would come up after the Roman Empire would be the, the Mongols in Europe. I'm not talking about the, the Islam. Uh, they accomplished all of what is today modern-day Russia, western Kazakhstan, eastern Ukraine, Azerbaijan, large parts of the northern Caucasus of Georgia, the Crimea, northeastern Turkey. Uh, Khazaria was one of the major arteries of commerce going between the Islamic world and Christian Europe. In fact, it was in the middle of the two. And it was part of the Silk Road. What does Khazar mean? <coughs> well, no one's really sure. But most p- 
people, most historians assume, comes from the Turkish verb to wander. The first time we find the Khazars in the history books is they joined with the Byzantines, we discussed this last week, in their battle against the Sassanid Persians, um, they joined with the Byzantines in their side. Now, interestingly enough, the Jews are, of course, cheering against the Byzantines. So the Khazars come, they're on the side of the Byzantine Empire, who, under Justinian, banned all Torah study, banned the synagogues, forcibly converted Jews. You know, as discussed at length, these were people, who, the Byzantine Empire, would have destroyed Jewry. That's what we discussed last week. Um, the Khazars not only joined with the Byzantines, but in numerous marriages between the Khazars and the Byzantines, so much so that one of the Byzantine kings, heads of the Byzantine Empire, was called Leo the, Leo the Khazar, because his mother was a Khazar. Originally, the Khazars <coughs> practiced traditional Turkish shamanism. They focused on a sky god called Tengri, but they also had many Confucian ideas as well. The Khazars were exposed to Judaism. There was, there was and this is a historical fact, many Jews in the Crimea, many Jews escaping from the Byzantines in particular, some for the, that small period of time where the Persians were dangerous, others were mountain Jews, which are there to this very day. I mean, you meet Bokharians, they're going way back into time uh, with that, their population. At some point, and we'll discuss this soon, in the 8th or 9th, early 9th century, the Khazar royalty and nobility definitely converted to Judaism, and part of the general population followed. Now, the Arabs, the Persians, claimed that all of the Khazars are Jews. Listen to the Persian historian, 10th century, Ibn al-Falik al-Khamadani. This is actually a famous 10th century Persian historian who reported that all Khazars are Jews. And other Arabs mimic that. However, many historians disagree. Um, that not all Khazars were Jews, and that's probably true to, to, that not all Khazars were Jews. D. Emmett Donalop, who was the most famous author and historian of Khazars, wrote a, a famous book in 1954, claims that it was only the upper class was converted. Others, such as Kevin A. Brooke, who wrote a book a few years ago called The Jews of Khazaria, asserts, and he brings proof, this is, which is beautiful, if you look at all the burial customs of Khazaria, they can see how the people were buried that they used to have like pagan burials with all kinds of things buried with them with very elaborate burials all of a sudden in the 9th century they switched to shrouds and plain coffins like a Jewish burial right? so he contends that a lot more than just the nobility converted when did they convert? all historians say it was sometime after 740 and sometime before 830 Khazari coins newsmen say that already by the year 830 it was clear that the Khazar kingdom had converted to Judaism. In fact, when Cyril, for those who don't know their Christian history, Cyril was the apostle who converted the Russian Empire, when Cyril, who was very popular amongst the Slavs and converted the Slavs in mass, came to Khazaria, he was rebuffed. He was not able to convert the Khazars, and the head of the Khazar Empire in the year 860 was named Zakharia not a Turkish name. <laughs> okay? The many, there's, there are Arab sources who say that Isaac Sangri or Yitzhak Hasangri was a rabbi 
who converted them. Rav Sadi Gon has letters to the Khazars. The Karaites, not like Furkovitz would say later, actually call the Khazars Mamzer and Baz. They, they, they did not like the Khazars. They were clearly a rabbinic Jewish sentiment. They, they, they was rabbinic, which was why Furkovitz's claim that the Crimean Jews were Khazars, for anyone who knew anything of history, was absurd. But he claimed to the Russian Tsars, don't persecute us. We Karaites are Khazars. That obviously is not true. The Khazars never had anything to do with Karite Judaism. In fact, if you look at early Karite sources, they blasted the Khazars. But alas, the, Roman, the Russian Tsars never read early Karite writings. And the, the, the Karites were able to get away with their claim. Um, they, interestingly enough, the Muslims record that when the Jews were persecuted in Islamic lands, that the Karites, the Khazars responded by punishing the Muslims in the Khazar lands. Even Fadlan, this, this 10th century Persian, Arab, Persian Muslim historian says that in 920, the Khazar will receive the information that the, the Muslims destroyed a synagogue in Persia. He then gave orders that the minaret of the mosque of his capital should be broken off and the head of the minaret killed. And he further said that had the mo- he would not have been scared for retribution by the Muslims who totally destroyed the mosques in his neighborhood. The same thing this, this um, Svalin said that when the Byzantines under Romanus persecuted Jews, the Khazar government retaliated by persecuting the Eastern Orthodox Christians amongst them. A little bit of a tit or tat phenomenon. Eventually, the Khazar kingdom would fall to the Kievan Rus. Oleg, Rus, the Kievan Rus is what we call today the founders of the Russians. The Kievan Rus comes about in the mid-10th century, and sometime by the early 10th century, the, the, uh, or, or the... Uh, no, the late 10th century, excuse me, late 10th century, early 11th century, they knocked out the Khazars as a kingdom. Eventually, the Khazars would be lost as a race by the golden horde of Genghis Khan. And the Khazars would either leave Judaism, some would assimilate into Judaism, most of them going to Iran and Iraq. We will discuss later, in a few minutes, the claim that Ashkenazic Jewry at some level, stems from the Khazars. Look at source number two. Now, barring those few vigilante revenge, the Khazars were a unique kingdom. This is by a Russian historian, Vasiliev Grigoriev. Jacob, you've heard of him? Yeah? Uh, printed in 1876 in his compilation book, Rosaya is Isaiah. The Khazar people were an unusual phenomenon for medieval times. Surrounded by savage and nomadic tribes, you know, the, Afgan- the Afghans <laughs> have been around for a long time, they had all the advantages of the developed countries. Structured government, in fact, the Kievan Rus- Russians would take the political, legal system of the Khazars. They would take the Kagans and all of their systems. That was the Khazar system they took. Structured government, vast and prosperous trading, and a permanent uh, army. At the time when a great fanaticism and deep ignorance contested their dominion over Western Europe, the Khazar state was famous for its justice and tolerance. 
People persecuted for their faith flock into Khazaria from everywhere. As a glistening star, it shone brightly on the gloomy horizon of Europe and faded away without leaving any traces of existence. There were definitely large Muslims and large Christian groups in Khazaria, and even though the nobility of Khazaria was Jewish, they tolerated all religions, so much so that the Muslim sources report that the Khazar Supreme Court consisted of two Jews, two Christians, two Muslims, one pagan. Okay. Source number three. This is Professor Raymond Chinlin in his Chronicles of the Jewish People. Though the Jews were everywhere a subject people, and in much of the world persecuted as well, Kassaria was the one place in the medieval world where the Jews actually were their own masters. To the oppressed Jews of the world, the Kazars were a source of pride and hope, for their existence seemed to prove that God had not completely abandoned his people. Remember when I discussed Christianity, how the Jews were forgotten. Right? You are the oppressed people, the wandering Jew, and how Christian polemics in the 4th, 5th, and we'll see later, until the 19th, 18th, 20th century, would claim the Jews were forlorn. They were cursed because they rejected Jesus of Nazareth. Well, at this time, Khazaria was this great dream, this great hope. Here you had the Jews oppressed, vilified, forcibly converted by Christians, attacked and made dimmies by Muslims, and often forced to be converted as well. And he had his Jewish kingdom. Perhaps the most famous references to the Khazars is not the Khazars we'll discuss momentarily, is the Khazar correspondence. The Khazar correspondence is a couple of letters written by Khazdai ibn Shaprut. Khazdai ibn Shaprut, who lived from 915 to 917, was the Secretary of State of the Caliph of Cordoba. In the nine, in the, in he, when he lived in the 10th century, Spain was arguably the most enlightened country in Europe and in the world, was arguably beginning to have its height as a country, and the Caliph of Cordoba was famous. Believe it or not, Cordoba was an edified, considered within reason, religiously tolerant city. It's not a surprise that the Cordoba group, anyone know why Cordoba is in the news? They want to name that mosque, the Cordoba Foundation, it's called the Cordoba Foundation, because Cordoba was a symbol of Muslim, not only dominance, but intellectual superiority, and at some level, religious tolerance. So religiously tolerant was Cordoba, that their most powerful individual after the Caliph was a Jew. Not only a Jew, but he was the head of all Spanish Jewry, named Chazda ibn Shaprut, who supported, he was a man of great wealth, which... In those days, the way he got into politics was to be the Bill Gates of the generation. <laughs> he was a man of great wealth, great knowledge, great charisma. He funded all of the issues of Spain. He made Spain. When we talk about the Golden Age of Spain, it starts with Khazdai ibn Shaprut. He fostered and sponsored the yeshivas of Spain. He corresponded with out, throughout Babylonian Jewry in North Africa. He put Spain on the scholarship map. He was an inordinately wealthy and wise individual, and he had all resources at his disposal. 
When he heard about this Kazariah, he sent emissaries across the world. This is in the days before Federal Express and UPS. To get from Spain to deep Russia was not a day or a two-day journey, was months to years in the process to get that far and very dangerous. You needed some kind of royal protection to get there, to make sure you didn't get pillared or pillaged or killed on the way. And it went through numerous different kingdoms, and there was not um, phones to call home if you had a problem. I want to just look at Source 4, because Source 4 is Chazai's letter to the head of the Khazars. Now, by the way, these letters, you can look it up yourself. The Khazar correspondence has been vetted, has been researched. These are famous letters and that we have to this day. There's three versions of the letters. These letters are quoted extensively already in the 10th, 11th, and 12th century. And the, the differences are, are, are minor in the versions. Let's look at the bold in, 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 in four. This is Chazdai speaking to Joseph, the king of the Khazars. <coughs> I always ask, because he's, he's the foreign, he's the secretary of state. I always ask the ambassadors of these monarchs who bring gifts to our brethren, the Israelites, the remnant of the captivity, whether they have heard anything concerning the deliverance of those who have languished in bondage and have found no rest. He, I was anxious to know if the ten tribes existed as an independent Jewish state anywhere. At length, mercantile emissaries of some Khorazan, a land southeast of the Caspian Sea, told me that there is a kingdom of Jews which is called Al-Khazar. But I did not believe these words, for I thought they told me such things to procure my goodwill and favor. I was therefore wondering till the ambassadors of Constantinople, who were obviously were Muslims, came between, uh, were, were, excuse me, Eastern Orthodox Christians at that time, that still was under the Byzantine Empire, came between 944 and 949 with presents and a letter from their king to our king. And I interrogated them concerning this manner. They answered me, it is quite true, and the name of the kingdom is Al-Khazar. It is a 15 days journey by sea from Constantinople, but by land many nations intervene between us. The name of the king now reigning is Joseph. Sips sometimes come from their country to ours, bringing fish, skins, and wares of every kind. The Khazars, great traders, got their wares from Rus to the north. The men are our confederates and are honored by us. There is communication between us by embassies and mutual gifts. They are very powerful. They maintain numerous armies with which they occasionally engage in expense. When I heard this report, I was encouraged. My hands were strengthened and my hope was confirmed. Thereupon I bowed down and adored the God of heaven. Chazdai was happy. Christians could no longer say that Jews were without a country as a punishment for the rejection of Jesus. What, they, what the Christians believed for generations is why are the Jews wandering? Why are they stateless? Why are they persecuted wherever they go? Must be they rejected the dude from Nazareth as we discussed at length in Christianity. Says Chazdai, finishes letter, I pray for the health of my Lord the King of his family and of his house, and that his throne may be established be forever. Let his days and his son's days be prolonged in the midst of Israel. Source number five is Joseph's reply. Now, I'm going to skip the beginning. Bold. Let's just go. He then says he's a Khazar, and he says the Khazars come from Yechet. And he gives his lineage. You have the sources to look at as you will. 
Um, but I want to go to the king of the ba- Byzantines, because it's in the middle of his letter, <coughs> where he discusses how the Khazars converted. The king of the Byzantines and the Arabs, who had heard of him, sent their envoys and ambassadors with great riches and many great presents to the king as well. And as some of their wise men with the object of converting him to their religion. The Byzantines and Arabs hoped to stop the ca- raids of the Khazars by converting them. Go to the next bold. Uh, so the, 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 the Joseph discusses how the king spoke to the Muslim theologians, spoke to the Christian theologians, and asked the Muslims if it's between the Jews and the Christians who should you believe. The Muslims said the Jews. And then he said to the Christians, if it's the Jews and the Muslims who should you believe. The Christians said the Jews. See, so then he says, upon this, the king said, if so, you will both admit it with your own mouths that the religion of the Israelites is better. Wherefore, trusting in the mercies of God and the power of the Almighty, I choose the religion of Israel. It is the religion of Abraham. If it, that in God in whom I trust and in the shadow of whose wings I find refuge will aid me. He can give me, without labor, the money, the gold, and the silver which you have promised me. As for you, for all you, go now in peace to your land. From that time, the Almighty helped Bulan. Bulan, by the way, means elk. That was a name for elk, a Turkish name for elk. Fortified him and strengthened him. He circumcised himself, his servants, attendants, and according to this letter, and all his people. Then Bulan sent for and brought from all places wise men of Israel who interpreted the Torah for him and arranged the precepts in, or, in order. And up to this very day, we have been subject to this religion. May God's name be blessed and may His remembrance be exalted forever. Since that day, when my fathers entered into this religion, the God of Israel has humbled all of their enemies, subjected every folk and tongue around about them, whether Christian, Muslim, or pagan. No one has been able to stand up to this day about 960. All of them are tributary. Unfortunately, about 15 years later, <laughs> the Khazars will get crushed by the Kievan Rus Empire. After the days of Bulan, there arose one of his descendants, a king, Abai Avadia by name, who reorganized the kingdom and established the Jewish religion properly and correctly. He built synagogues and yeshivas, brought in Jewish scholars and rewarded them with gold and silver. The Jewish scholars could have come from Baghdad and Constantinople. They explained to him, say goodbye cat rights, Bible, Mishnah, and Talmud, and the order of the divine services. The king was a man who revered and loved the Torah. He was one of the true servants of God. May the divine spirit give him rest. Now he goes, I'm going to skip most of the letter in the name of time. He does talk about how Jews, Christians, and Muslims are in the kingdom. The last, par- last bold is, you mention in your letter that you yearn to see my face, I also would very much like to see your pleasant countenance and the rare beauty of your wisdom and greatness, would that it were according to your word, if it would be granted me to be associated with you, and to behold your honored, charming, pleasant countenance, he wishes him to be well. We have no historical evidence that they ever, of course, met. This letter is remarkable simil- similar to the next work which came out approximately 100 years later. This is from a classic, one of the most popular Jewish works, which Jim Roberts and I are studying right now, called the Kuzari. The Kuzari has the name Khazar. It, it, it discusses, it is a Jewish book discussing why not only Judaism is right, but why the Torah is divine, why the oral law is true, why Islam and Muslims are incorrect, and how does the Kuzari, what's the prose of the Khuzari, what's the literary structure, 
the Kuzari is written as a discussion between the Khazar king and originally only the, the Muslim Qadi, the Muslim Sheikh, the Muslim um, you know, um, preacher and Christian priest in discussion with them and eventually a Jewish rabbi comes in and the whole genre discusses how the Khazar king became Jewish. Now, Chizdai was about a hundred years before Yehud Levi. Yehud Levi was, we'll discuss him in the Golden Age of Spain. He wrote the Kuzari, My Heart is in, my, in the East. Uh, although I am in the East, my heart is in the, although I am in the West, my heart is in the East. Thank you. Uh, he was a famous Jewish author. Many of our liturgy comes from Yehud Levi. Uh, we'll discuss him later. Yehud Levi certainly knew who Chizdai Ibn Shaput is. He most definitely had these letters when he wrote the Kuzari. Um, in fact, most historians assume that, secular historians, non-Jewish, all assume that Yehuda Levi had the Chizdai letters. Look at source number six, which is the second, the Kuzari is broken up into five essays. This is the beginning of essay two. So after this conversation, the Khazar king, as is related in the history of the Khazars, was anxious to reveal his visor in the mountains. And they, the next bold, the king and his visor traveled to the desert mountains on the seashore and arrived one night at a cave in which some Jews used to celebrate the Sabbath. They disclosed their identity to the Jews, to them, embraced their religion, were circumcised in the cave, and then returned to their country eager to learn the Jewish law. They kept their conversion in secret, however, until they found an opportunity of disclosing the fact gradually to a few of their special friends. When the number had increased, they made the affair public and induced the rest of the Khazars to embrace the Jewish faith. They sent to various countries for scholars and books and studied the Torah. The Kuzari, by the way, is a classic work. It's worth it to read. If you have not studied the Kuzari, a new beautiful translation came out by Feltheim, by Rabbi Daniel Korobkin, who is a rabbi in Los Angeles, of the rabbi in Yavn in Hancock Park. It's, it's, it is a classic. Every Jew should be literate in Kuzari. This is bread and butter. If you have not learned the Kuzari, don't wait until you're a hundred. This is a book people should know going through life. Did you in Arabic? It was, it was written in Arabic and translated into dozens of languages, including into English. Um, look at source number seven. Because even though, even though the Khazars would get destroyed, um, they would be some of the causes would still exist amongst the Jewish people. Look at source number seven. This is by the Ravid of Toledo. Ravid wrote Sefer Kabbalah, the book of tradition. He says as follows, you will find the communities of Israel spread abroad as far as Dalim, and the Dalim is near Iran, and the river Ital, where Khazar peoples who became proselytes. The Khazar king Joseph sent a letter to Khazar ibn Shaprut and informed him that he and all his people followed rabbinic, the rabbinical faith. We have seen descendants of Khazars in Toledo. Some of his own students. Students of the wise. And they have told us that the remnant is of, of them. The remnant. Those who are left. Those Khazars who didn't get completely destroyed is of the rabbinical belief. Just a couple of Islamic sources. Most Ahmad ibn Fadulan, who was a 10th century person we quoted before. Ibn Al-Faqiq, who is, who is another Persian historian who wrote, is famous for his concise book of lands, also says in 930, all of the Khazars are Jews, but they have been Judaized recently. Look at source number 8. This is Abad al-Jabbar ibn Muhammad al-Ahmadani. 
and his establishment of the proofs for the prophethood of our master Muhammad. Certainly not somebody advocating the Jewish faith. Um, one of the Jews undertook the conversion of the Khazars, who are composed of many peoples, and they were converted by him and joined his religion. This happened recently in the days of the Abbasids, it's in the 8th century, for this was a man who came single-handedly to a king of great rank, to a very spirited people, and they were converted by him, without any recourse to violence and the sword, which was novel when Christianity spread throughout Europe, you know, Askas, the Franks, how they speak Christianity by the sword. The Muslims certainly spread by the sword. That was, jihad was a dogma of theirs. And they took upon themselves the difficult obligations enjoined by the law of the Torah, such as circumcision, the ritual ablutions, washing after the discharge of the semen, the prohibitions of work on the Sabbath and during the feasts, the prohibition of eating the flesh of forbidden animals according to this religion, and so on. There are many Russian sources which discuss the causes. Byzantine sources, look at source number 9. This is 9th century monk Christian of Stavlots in his Exposisto in Mathem of Evangelism. For Christians are even found in the lands of Gog and Magog. And now if you look, by the way, at Islamic literature also, they would be far the land of the Khazars, they call it Gogul Magog. Avadia, one time, not Avadia, Asadigon also has some kind of line like this as well, who are a Hunnic race. He says, he claims, this 9th century monk, that the, the Khazars are from the Huns, the Avars perhaps, the Huns, which most historians don't agree with. I mean, he didn't see them firsthand, but he said they're from the Hunnic race, and they're called Khazari, Ghazari, circumcised in observing all the laws of Judaism. Now, why are the Khazars very relevant today? Okay. There is, and you can, if you want to have fun, Google this. There is a conspiracy theory going on for almost 150 years that Ashkenazic Jewry comes from the Khazars. <coughs> it was first publicly as an idea expressed by Ernest Renan, the French, French, French biblical scholar in 1883. However, it was popularized by a very, very famous anti-Semite, author of the Dearborn Independent, Mr. Henry Ford, who used this idea to blast the Bolshevik causers <laughs> in his Dearborn Independent. And later by a racial theorist called Lutharp Stoddard in a 1926 article called The Pedigree of Judah, where he argued that Ashkenazic Jewry were a mix of people, mongrels, of amongst most of them were Khazars. In 1951, a Southern Methodist University professor, John Obidi, published a book called The Iron Curtain over America. In this book, he claimed that the Khazar Jews were responsible, it's like the Protocols of Elders of Zion, were responsible for all of America's and all the world's ills, beginning with World War I. He claimed that these Khazar Jews had plotted World War I and World War II. Of course, he had tenure, this individual. And the, the Bolshevik Revolution were because of Khazar Jews, and they want to overthrow Western Christianity. Next came 1971, John Baggett Glob, Glob Pasha, 
who said, well, that, if this is the case, the Khazar Jews have no right to Palestine, the Palestinians should have it first. Right? Benny Morris, who is not what you call right-wing Zionist, said, of course, this is a quote, of course, an anti-Zionist as well as an anti-Semite point is being made here, that Palestinians have a greater political right to Palestine than Jews do, as they are not modern-day Jews. Jews are just descendants of the Khazars. Now, this theory went wild by a Jew. This Jew was named, was Arthur Kostler. Arthur Kostler, in 1976, see people perhaps have read this book, wrote a book called The Thirteenth Tribe, in which he claims that many Jews are Khazars. The history of this book is non-historical. In fact, one of the people who quotes, misquotes is Dunlop's book, The Jews of Khazar, and Dunlop himself said that, of course, this theory is a joke. But he quotes him when he discusses the theory. Um, Kostler did not have ill intent. What was Kostler's point? Very interesting. He tried to do what the Karaites did. Kostler said, it's not right to call the Jews Christ killers or give them any blame for anything. He's a secular Hungarian Jew, like George Soros. Secular Hungarian Jew, trying to get Judaism out of any problem in his own mind. He said, I don't, I don't want to say that we do this. We're the sentence of the causes. That was his stained desire in writing the book. He said he didn't know any anti-Semites had used this idea previously. And he, this, is very interesting. this is a quote by him. He said, as far as Israel, he didn't look at it as a biblical mandate, but it was voted by the United Nations. The fact that the Jews came for causes were irrelevant in his mind. Now, historians across the board obviously hold there's no claim. We'll discuss it in a minute. But the Kaza theory became a worldwide theory by anti-Semites and, in particular, anti-Zionists. So already by the 1970s and 80s, Russian anti-Semites, chauvinists, ones like Lev Gumilev, uh, even Lev Gumilev, uh, portrayed Judeo-Kazas of disrupting Russian policy, theology, and success since the 7th century. Neo-Nazis and Holocaust denial organizations particularly used, were fond of the Khazar myth, uh, myths, and they even have a cabal called KZV. Put KZV. Try, you know, you don't get bored, you Google things. You can just, you know, put this. Khazarin Zionist Bolsheviks. Now, don't do this in front of little children, because the website still gets. <laughs> Will not be pretty. Right? Khazarin Zionist Bolsheviks. Right? And this by Al Jazeera and other Islamic organizations would go ahead and, you know, use the Khazar story to, like a protocol of El Zayr, to claim that the Jews were usurping power, especially in Israel. Now, this is conspiracy gone wild, and the truth is it would disappear, but for people have a stake in claiming this. Because if the Jews are descendants of the Khazars, and not the ancient Israelites, okay, now, besides what you'll discuss in a minute, the Ashkenazi Jewry is clearly not from the Khazars, but they forget that Sephardic Jews are actually more populous than Ashkenazi Jews in Israel. <laughs> they forget about all the Middle Eastern Jews, and this doesn't explain the Sephardic Jews for sure. But they wanted to say that they have no right to Israel. They can't claim that they have a, a, a right to go back to Israel. This goes against Christian Zionism as well. These aren't the ancient Hebrews. These aren't the ancient Jews. And so you'll find Christian identity, black Hebrews. I actually once had a black Hebrew in Philadelphia. Of course, the black Hebrews claim that they are the biblical Jews. I once had a crazy conversation. I mean, 
I, I, the guy must have had an IQ of about 40. I mean, I mean, I mean, just we just talked to the guy, but he claimed that I was after, after, after during the conversation. I just talked to him. He that was from Satan. <laughs> yeah, he saw me pictures of why the blacks are the real Hebrews. You know, if anyone knows the the, the history of, of black Hebrews, it's not even there's no credibility to the movement. They are very anti-Semitic, and in fact, most black Hebrew org- groups on ADL's watch list is anti-Semitic, okay? I had a serious conversation with this person who pretty much accosted me in Philadelphia at one point when I was in university there. Um, they are a dangerous group, I must tell you. I think Eric Cantor this year, who is now the majority leader of the House um, and a Jew who prays in an Orthodox synagogue and learns with an Orthodox rabbi, although he himself is not Orthodox, um, was threatened by a black Hebrew this year who called him all kinds of Lucifer and whatever. Um, British Israelism, Anglo-Israelism, for those who don't know, also picked up this theory. Anglo-Israelism is also an interesting thing which many people don't know, that there's a school of thought in Britain that really the lost, ten lost tribes is England. And the house of Windsor is from the Davidic line. Now the Jews are usurpers. Anyone who wants to knock out Ashkenazic Jews, which they fear about the Sephardic Jews, they, 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 they all use this, this theory. Bernard Lewis, professor of Oxford, said that in 1999, this theory is supported by no evidence whatsoever and has long since been abandoned by all serious scholars in the field, including those in Arab countries where the Kaza theory is little used except in occasional political polemics. Now, I, I once had Orthodox Jews ask me if this is true. I mean, this is, this is like literally believing, you know, the Protocols of Elders of Zion, when all the Jew- Jewish rabbis get ahead and plot the world, and every year... This is like, this is it's so incredulous historically. I mean, let's just start simple. Ashkenazic Jewry. We have, we can track exactly where from the House of Rashi coming up through northern Africa, clearly the House of Rashi, way before anything else. Right? We have Ashkenazic Jewry in Gaul, way before all kinds. I mean, this is, this is historically documented. But beyond that, did you ever think, why do Ashkenazic Jews speak Yiddish? <laughs> Yeah, the Kazars spoke Yiddish. Kazars were Yiddish speakers. The Kazars had no Kohanim or Levian. The Chavetz Chaim was a Kohen. I mean, it comes to show that many Kohanim, I'm a Levi. <laughs> I'm a Levi. Okay, and then the list goes on. I mean, you know, I mean, archaeologists, historians, anyone of credential doesn't believe, but race theorists and anti-Semite and conspiracy theorists picked up on it mostly in the past 30 to 40 years and mostly for anti-Zionistic agendas. Well, it really doesn't answer even on their anti-Zionistic agendas because, again, the majority of Israel currently is about 55% from Middle Eastern from Sephardic background. Only about 45% of Israel is Ashkenazi. So, even in their anti-Zionist background, even in this crazy theory, it wouldn't make sense, but they want to use it as a political basis. Genetic tests have been done in the past 15 years, all of them showing that Ashkenazic Jewry and Sephardic Jewry are pretty much identical. Right? All genetic barriers affect, by your wedding, you had a, was Hammer, was that, was it Hammer? Who is a religious Sherman Gold? Their cousin. He was, he's one of the researchers who actually researches. But both Jewish and non-Jews have done studies of Jewry. There is about 11% of Ashkenazic Jewry who apparently has some kind of outside gene. Some people want to claim it's from the Khazars, which is possible. Possible Judaism always allowed conversions. Also possible other people, of course, correct conversion, convert in. 
But according to Nicholas Wade in the last study, Nicholas Wade is a scientific reporter for both the New York Times and Nature Scientific, that the result, <laughs> when he saw him at the Hammer study, which was, if you want to look at the studies, Proceedings of the United States National Academy of Sciences, which compared the Y chromosomes of Ashkenazic, Roman, North African, Kurdish, Near Eastern, Yemite, Yemenite, and Ethiopian Jews with 16 non-Jewish groups from similar geographic locations. It found that despite their long-term residence in different countries and isolation from one another, most Jewish populations were not significantly different from one another at a genetic level. The results support the hypothesis that the paternal gene pools of the Jewish communities from Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East descended from a common Middle Eastern ancestral population and suggests that most Jewish com- communities have remained relatively isolated from neighboring non-Jewish communities during and after the diaspora. So it says Nicholas Wade, the results accord with Jewish history and tradition and a few theories like those holding that the Jewish community consists of mostly of converts from other faiths or that they are descended from the Khazars, a Middle East, medieval Turkish tribe that adopted Judaism. That ends tonight's lecture. The next re- lecture will be on the Golden Age of Spain. Thank you.